Do you completely check out every time someone talks to you about saving for the future? Well, then you better stop listening right now, because in this episode, we will talk about everything investing and retirement. Hi, my name is Danielle. And my name is Daniel. And you're listening to the Happily Unmarried Podcast, a podcast about adulting and living your best life. In this episode, we will talk about why it's important to save for the future, how to get started saving your money, and what financial products are available to make your money work for you. Today, we're going to talk a lot about finances, investing, different financial products, etc. So since we're not financial advisors or CPAs, we have to tell you, this is not financial advice. This podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. And if you're looking for financial or tax advice, seek out a professional. And with that said, let's get straight to it. Why should you even want to save money? So I think there's a couple of reasons why you want or need to save money. So for one, there's retirement. We all know that relying on social security is kind of like a a lost cause at this point yes yeah then something that we also have a shared savings account we talked about this in our family finances episode is for big ticket items so if we need to buy uh furniture furniture or theory a new car i guess (laughs) (laughs) vacations vacations stuff like that stuff that you know will come up at some point throughout your life and it's usually too expensive to just pay out of pocket from the money that you get uh, on a monthly basis or bi-weekly basis whatever your pay schedule is and then i think another really important reason to save money is emergencies um sometimes large expenses come up or a loss of income. So, you know, maybe you need to get a ton of repairs done on your car or uh, you lose your job, uh, you know, having what they say between three to six months of your expenses saved um, for an emergency savings account is important. And that when we're saying expensive, it means everything that you need to pay to keep yourself alive. So that includes rent, that includes food, utilities, food, that kind of stuff. And then one thing that I'm a big fan of <laughs> is um, saving not to spend that money, but for the sake of investing it and then reaping the return on that investment. So making your money work for you. Yes, basically. And there's this whole community around what is called financial independence. Basically, the idea is that you save so much money that the returns of that investment alone are sufficient to sustain your life. So you basically don't have to work for your income anymore. You can just live off of the money that you save without actually spending any of your savings. Just the the interest and the returns of that investment are able to sustain your life. Obviously, you need a lot of money saved yeah. for that. <laughs> But it's, it's like this idea and people kind of like on the internet talk about it and are striving for it. The last point that is important to understand is you want to start saving as early as possible. Ideally, your first paycheck, you want to put that in an investment account. The reason for this is that over time, your savings, your investments will grow. To visualize what that means is at an 8% return of investment, which is a reasonable number if we're talking about investing in an index fund in the stock market... If you invest $1,000, you can expect that money over 30 years at an 8% return of investment to grow to $10,000, like tenfold. That's amazing. That's crazy. Just think about this. You put $1,000 into an investment account when you're 20, and when you're 50, you pull $10,000 out of it. That being said, not all of us are 20 anymore. And if you didn't start saving when you're 20, that's okay. You still have time. (laughs) I didn't significantly start saving for my retirement until I was 30, which is why we're going to go over what those options are. Because even if you feel like 
you've already missed the boat, it's not too late and you should start now. Did you know that you can listen to this podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and even on our website? Just search for Happily Unmarried Podcast and don't forget to subscribe. So one thing that people struggle when we're talking about saving money um, is how to square that with debt that they might already have. And most of us have one form or another of debt. So should you be paying off your debt first or should you be saving your money first? Um, and what rules can you apply to make that decision? Okay, well, I think we're in agreement that the first rule should be before you start saving that you pay off your high interest debt. So what what is high interest debt? Like your credit card debt. We're not looking, we're not talking about student loan debt. Student loan is at a very low interest rate typically, at least mine was, hope it still is. Um, but credit card debt can be upwards of 10% or higher. Like easily 20, 22, yeah. 26%. So when when looking at this, we mentioned the 8% return of investment in an investment account, in an index fund in the stock market. If you can make 8% return of investment and have a loan that costs you, let's say, 2 or 3%, really low interest rate, obviously, but let's just assume that, then paying off that loan first doesn't really make sense compared to investing your money into the stock market. You can, what you can do is you can use that loan as a leverage. You basically get money that you wouldn't have otherwise to invest in the stock market. Obviously, there's risk with that, right? There's no guarantee that you will get an 8% return of investment, but there's a guarantee that you will have to pay your interest. Right. <laughs> And there's another interesting tidbit here, especially if we're talking about a mortgage. If the loan that you have is a mortgage, then uh, typically you can deduct your mortgage interest from your taxes. The actual amount of mortgage interest that you pay will be lower than that number because you save on taxes in the end. And then another interesting thing when talking about debt and saving money is principal payment, that is the amount of money that you pay towards a loan, that reduces your loan balance versus just interest. You can think of that as saving. Effectively, what you're doing is you're you're putting money somewhere into an account. The fact that this account happens to be at a negative balance right now isn't really relevant for for thinking about this, right? When you put it on a um, balance sheet, it will still increase your balance. Right? Principal payments increases your net worth. All right, now that we have talked about the reasons why you should save money, let's jump into the different types of savings options that you have, starting one with the, I think, oldest way to save money, which is in your mattress. Mattress money, money that you hide in a cupboard in case of the apocalypse, which... I'm sure it will be a lot of use in the apocalypse. (laughs) It is easily accessible. Um, You know where to find it. You can get it quickly, but it can also be lost. I have a friend who had a neighbor who passed away, and when they went through his home to clean clean it out and get it ready to be sold, they found bundles and bundles and bundles of cash everywhere. Was that the breaking bad guy? No. And like in the basement, like some of the cash was ruined. Like it wasn't, it had got, there was like a flood. So you can lose it. It can get ruined. It can get stolen. Yeah. So that's definitely a risk. And then obviously you're not making money off of this money. There's no interest here. There's no return of investment. And in fact, inflation will just like eat away at it over time. Uh, The second type of savings would be your standard, you know, checking or savings account. You know, we all, I think, already have these, at least a checking account. So I think we're all pretty familiar with it. 
Uh, you don't get a significant ROI when it comes to a checking account, period. Um, savings accounts, occasionally uh, we do have a bank that we use that has what I guess would be considered a high interest savings account. That's um, Ally Bank. It's an online bank. But that money is generally FDIC assured and it is a good way to keep an emergency fund. So if you need to quickly access that money for an emergency, uh, it's more accessible than money that you might have invested. Um, and just to be clear, FDIC insured means if the bank that you have your money with, if they go insolvent, if they go bankrupt, then they can't pay you your money back that you have in their account. FDIC insurance is basically the government stepping in and giving you your money back if that happens. So this money is safe. You can't lose it, even if the bank that you have it with goes bankrupt. Most commonly used checking accounts and savings accounts are FDIC insured. There are some high yield savings accounts that are not FDIC insured. So always look at the fine print below and see if it is FDIC insured or not. So another common type of saving is retirement savings. And while you can really use any savings for your retirement, there are certain benefits of having specific retirement accounts. The federal government provides certain tax benefits for retirement investment accounts. So the most commonly used ones that you may have heard of or are hopefully also using right now um, if not, you might want to start using them after you heard this, listen to this episode, is a 401k and an IRA. The benefit of these types of accounts is that you don't have to pay any income tax on contributions to those accounts up to a certain annual limit. For 401ks, that's typically $19,000 per year, and for an IRA, that's typically $6,000 a year, at least at the time of recording this episode right now. And also, you know, when we're talking about retirement savings accounts, there is a difference between the IRA and the 401k in that 401k is an employer-provided account. So the first thing that you should do if you don't know already is check to see if your employer offers a 401k. Okay, This is the easiest way to put money into a retirement account. Your employer takes it right out of your check pre-tax and puts it into the investment account. And many companies will match up to a certain percentage um, over a certain period of time. So that's basically free money. Yeah. So the matching is is not all employers offer this, but but for those that do, this is this is literally free money. So for every dollar that you invest into your 401k, your employer might match that with 50 cents, 25 cents, whatever their, their matching ratio is. The tax benefits that these accounts provide, they come at a cost. So the cost in this case is that the money that you put into the account has to stay into in that account until a certain age limit. There are some exceptions to that, but generally that is true. These accounts are designed so that you will keep your money in there for a long period of yeah. time. In exchange, you get those tax benefits that we talked about before. Another interesting thing, and we'll go into a little bit more detail uh, uh, later uh, about why this is important. When contributing to a 401k, you have a contribution limit of $19,000 a year that is income tax-free, meaning you don't have to pay any income taxes on those contributions to the account, and generally your employer will take them out of your paycheck before you even get your money. That said, you can contribute to a 401k also with after-tax money. The contribution limit here is significantly higher um, and is up to $56,000 a year in total, including the tax-free contributions. We'll get to why this might be interesting to you uh, a little bit later, but keep that in mind. One other important thing to note is 
if your company does not offer a 401k, then you can open up an IRA and receive the same tax benefits that you would receive receive through the employer benefit program. Um, if your company does have a 401k and you are putting money into that, you can still open an IRA, but you're not going to have the same pre-tax um, benefits. Yeah. Keep in mind that even if you can open an IRA, the contribution limits that are tax-free to an IRA are much lower than for a 401k. They're only $6,000 compared to $19,000. And then to make things even more complicated, why don't you tell us about the Roth IRA. Okay, so Roth IRAs are also retirement accounts, but they're different to 401ks and normal IRAs in a very specific and profound way. They have a tax benefit, but the tax benefit is not front-loaded, it's back-loaded, meaning the contributions that you make into the account are fully taxed, so you pay your normal income taxes and whatnot, and whatever you have left then on your paycheck that you get actually paid out, you can contribute to your Roth IRA. And the contribution limits, they are shared between normal IRAs and Roth IRAs, so it's $6,000 a year. There is another asterisk for Roth IRAs. If you make over a certain limit of money per year, the contribution limit starts phasing out, so you can pay even less into the account until you cannot pay anything into the Roth IRA anymore. But we'll get to that in a little bit as well, because there is a workaround. So the amazing thing about the Roth IRA is that not the contributions are tax-free, but the distributions are tax-free. So whatever returns that you make on your investments in a Roth IRA, if you distribute them um, after a magic age limit, which is like approximately 60 years, I think, you don't have to pay any taxes on those distributions. So normally you would have to pay capital gains taxes on those distributions. With a Roth IRA, they're tax-free. And if you think back at, to the example that we had in the beginning with investing $1,000 and after 30 years, that's $10,000, would you rather pay taxes on $1,000 and then get $9,000 additional dollars tax-free? Or would you rather pay no taxes on your $1,000, but then pay taxes on your $9,000 that you take out of the account later? Like if you have a retirement account in which uh, money grows over a very long period of time, you probably want to have the distributions tax-free instead of the contributions. This is especially true if you're investing very early in your life and you're you're probably in a in a lower marginal tax bracket because you're at the beginning of your career, you're not making that much money yet. So the contributions that you're that are being taxed are taxed at a relatively low rate. But later in your life, when you're like very established, have a good career, make a lot of money, hopefully, then the your in the tax bracket for your capital gains will be significantly higher. So it's it it makes a lot of sense for people that expect large career growth to go that path. But even for average Joe, if the money sits in that account for a very long time, 20, 30, 40 years, it absolutely makes sense. Let's get back to the 401k after-tax contributions um, that we talked about earlier. You might ask yourself, why would I... I'm already putting money in pre-tax. Why would I want to then put more in post-tax? Especially because the after-tax contributions, there is no tax benefit anymore. You might as well just put them in a completely normal investment account, and then you're not subject to those same limitations, potentially, or restrictions that your 401k might impose on you. The reason why you might want to do this is the following. If and only if your employer offers a specific version of the 401k, and not all employers offer this, but specifically what what you need to have is your employer needs to allow after-tax contributions to 401k and needs to um, allow in-service distributions. What this means is your employer doesn't actually maintain this account for you. So your your employer will partner with some financial service provider, third party, that actually provides 
your 401k account. And if that third-party financial service provider also offers a Roth IRA and offers the ability to transfer money from your 401k to your Roth IRA, then what you can do is you can transfer all the after-tax contributions on a regular basis. Most providers offer this either monthly or every quarter or once a year or whatever. You can move all of these contributions to the Roth IRA. And what happens now is that all these investments that you've made suddenly grow tax-free. All the distributions that you take from them after the magical age cutoff, you can get without having to pay taxes for it. So this is a little trick that not everybody's aware of, and it's a little complicated to execute. But if you figure out how to do it, and you have the money to do it, this can save you a lot of money over a long period of time. So this is called the Roth IRA Mega Backdoor. I don't know who comes up with these names, but that's what, if you Google for this, you will find all the information that you need. Follow us on social media to get a peek behind the scenes. We are at Unmarried Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, and so the last type of savings that we are going to talk about here are just traditional investments. Right, and we want to explore a little bit what the financial products are that are generally available that you can use to invest your money. But before we dive too deep, we want to briefly establish some fundamental understanding and concepts around investments, specifically liquidity. That is a term that you may or may not have heard before in relation to financial products. What this means really is how easy it is to get your money back after you bought some financial product or some investment. For example, for retirement accounts, the liquidity is very low because you can only get the money out with some asterisks when you reach the the age threshold of 60 or whatever it is. Whereas when... Standard investment account, say your money's in stocks, you could sell your stocks and within a matter of a few days, you can have that money in hand. Right. So it's far more liquid than a retirement account. In a, in a savings account, you could take it out immediately, yes. right? So so this describes how easy it is to access your investments, basically, and, and, and turn them back into cash. Quick question, though. When it comes to assets that are not liquid, would that also include things uh, like you've invested, you, you bought a home or you've invested in somebody's business? In, yes, that, that is absolutely correct. So it takes weeks or months to sell a home. So if even if you decide today you want to turn your home into cash, it'll take a long time for you to be actually able to get that cash out of it. Uh, and obviously there's a big effort around that and you need to move out and whatever. So it's like real estate is a real low liquidity asset. So I think one of the first very common investment types that people use um, that we want to talk about are CDs. A CD is a certificate of deposit. Basically what this means is you take a certain amount of money, you bring it to your bank, you sign some paperwork, and then starts paying you interest at a regular interval um, until a certain maturity date was reached, at which point you get your money back and the bank stops paying your money for your investment. And typically with CDs, this whole holding onto your money for a certain period of time. So I actually had a CD once when I was, (laughs) I think maybe like 18. It was my first kind of foray into saving money. But I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you get a higher interest rate than your standard savings account. CDs generally have a higher interest rate than your average saving accounts, especially CDs that have longer maturity dates. Yeah, the longer they hold on. 6, 12, 24 months, 5 years. That said, though, and this is kind of like, I think, why CDs may have fallen out of favor for a lot of people in the last couple of years. There's two major things. Your money becomes really illiquid 
if you're if it's in a long-term CD. So you pay a high price in terms of liquidity for the higher interest rates. And in addition to that, the interest rates that even long-term CDs pay are not competitive with high interest yield savings accounts. They're generally like one to two percent, and the the high yield savings accounts that you get f- at a lot of online banks and whatnot, they generally pay more than two percent uh, without having any liquidity sacrifices. Uh, so you can put your money in and take it out any day without any implications, other than that you don't get the interest for it anymore. Obviously, right. one benefit of CDs, however, and compared to a lot of other of the investment products, is that they are FDIC insured. Again, if the bank goes bankrupt, you still have you money. still keep your money. So I think. A CD is pretty low risk. Other than losing the liquidity for a period of time, it's pretty low risk when you're looking. Yeah, so when we're looking at the risk factor, they're pretty straightforward. That said, FDIC-insured high-interest or high-yield savings accounts are also pretty low risk. And they provide better interest generally. And they're liquid. Yes. So the next type of investment is, I think, what most of us typically associate with the word investment, and that's stocks, investing your money in stocks. So what are stocks? A stock fundamentally is a share in a company. So when you buy a company stock, what that means is you buy a share of that company. and So you own a piece of that company. Yeah, you don't own a specific door or a specific brick, right. but you own a slice of the business as an abstract concept. So what this means is generally two things. It depends a little bit on the details, uh, but generally what this means is you own a right to the distributions of that company. So if the company pays dividends or the value of the company rises, you own this additional value or you have a right to those distributions, to those dividends. The other thing that uh, owning a share in a company allows you to do, and this is very interesting, I think, a lot of people don't really make use of this, but since you are a shareholder, you now have voting rights. So when the company makes big decisions, basically appointing a new member of the board or changing something about how the company is structured, generally the shareholders have to be asked. Is it all shareholders or only those who own a certain percentage? It is all shareholders that have voting rights stock. So some companies have different classes of stock and certain share types are non-voting shares. So you don't get any voting rights with those shares and they are generally on the stock market a little bit cheaper. But then there's also, there's always also voting shares that allow you to vote in these uh, shareholder meetings. That said, if you own $100 worth of stock in a 10 billion market cap company, then your votes are proportional to the amount of shares that you own compared to the total number of shares that exist. So if you think your vote in our democratic system doesn't mean anything, then those votes mean even less. <laughs> One great benefit of stocks, however, is while they're, they have a really good return of investment in general, depending on what specifics you buy, but we're going to get into this a little bit later, they're also very liquid. As long as there's a trading day on a uh, stock market, you can go and buy and sell your stocks very easily. But on the other hand, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are afraid of the stock market, is that it does carry a risk. And the value of the stock that you own is really based on the company's performance. Right. The company's performance and how the economy is doing in general. What you see a lot when you invest into the stock market, especially if you buy individual stocks, is a lot of the stocks will move in very similar patterns. Right, where sometimes a specific company will break out up or break out down. But in general, a lot of the companies, they 
the movements are very similar to each other. This is just because the market value of a lot of these companies is driven by the overall economic uh, economic situation, right? And so they they are all subject to the same economic situ- situation, so they will move very similarly. And on top of that, unlike your savings and your checking and your CDs, this money is not insured. Right. So if you buy a company and that company goes bust tomorrow, then your you money is gone. Your money. That said, there are ways to kind of mitigate that risk in the stock market. And this gets us into the area of buying individual stocks versus buying fund. Let's quickly talk about what individual stocks are and why you might want to buy them. So an individual stock does allow you to specifically pick which companies you want to invest in. So if you are someone who's very passionate about a certain area and you're following certain companies because you believe in what they're doing and you want to invest in those companies, purchasing individual stocks in that company is one way to do that. Yeah, that's a perfect example. That being said, we've already talked about how stocks carry a risk. If you were to then take all your money and invest that into one stock, that's an even greater risk. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely true. Not, we're not only talking about the company going bust. Obviously, that, that would be terrible. But just having a bad quarter or a bad year, or if you buy an individual company, you have to be expecting that those prices go up and down significantly, which... We haven't really talked about this yet, but it's something that you generally need to call out. If you invest into the stock market, and it's almost regardless of what specific product or company or whatever you buy, is you have to expect the prices to go up and down. And There's really important here is... Ebb and flow to the stock market. So long term, you can expect, at least if you buy something like an index fund, and we'll get to that in a second, you can expect your money to grow. Short term, however, you have to be willing to see your money go or your investment go up and down. And really important here is to not freak out. If you can't deal with losing 10%, 20%, maybe even of your investment in any specific year, then investing in stock is probably not the right choice for you. You have to have the mental and emotional stability to be able to deal with your investment going up and down in value. Yeah. Um, you also don't need to look at your investments every day if that's, if you're that true. kind of person. So the best way to invest in the stock market is to treat it like a retirement account where you buy assets and then you just let them sit there for the next 30 years. So one way to mitigate the risk of stocks is to not buy individual stocks, but to sort of say buy a bouquet of different stocks. So the idea is, if you spread out your investments across lots of different companies, then the performance of any individual company will not impact you as much. And you could go and just select 100 different companies and then buy a little bit of stock in each of them, which would be a nuisance and will cost way too much in transaction fees and whatever. So instead, there's a financial product which does this for us, and it's called a fund. When you buy a fund, you basically buy shares in lots of different companies, depending on the composition of the fund. So every fund has a different composition. They buy different specific financial products. By buying a fund, you basically buy a basket of stocks. And so some funds, for example, um, target a specific market segment. So it could be large cap international companies or could be a thematic fund. And for example, they could only invest in renewable energies or tech or tech or in commodities. And so what that does, essentially, funds have a much lower risk than buying individual stocks because you buy a broad selection of different companies instead of just individual companies. And We mentioned this number before earlier, but one such fund that you could buy are index funds. They index specific overall markets. 
you might have heard of the S&P 500. And talking about the S&P 500 specifically, so any given year, the S&P 500 may have gone up 5% or gone down 5%. But over the last 90 years, on average, annually, the return of investment was over 9% for the S&P 500. So if you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you can expect to approximately get that amount of return of investment if you're looking at very large timeframes over decades versus individual years. Okay, so now that everyone understands stocks. Well, I hope so. Teach me about bonds. So bonds are basically a little bit like reverse loans. So instead of borrowing money from somebody, you are loaning somebody money through a bond. The way that this works is a bond is issued by a bond issuer. And typically, these are either companies or governments, could be federal governments, state governments, international governments. And they issue a certain number of certificates at a certain price and with the promise to pay you a certain interest rate. So if you go and buy a bond certificate, you pay your principal payment to the issuer, you get the bond certificate, and that issuer will now pay you an annual percentage as for you return of investment. From their perspective, it's them paying interest for the money that you have given them. And then bonds also have what's called a maturity date when that date is reached. So it's very similar to CDs in that regard. You get your original principal back again and the issuer stops paying you interest. Right. But it's my understanding that bonds are much higher risk and generally have a lower ROI. So why would somebody want to invest in bonds over, say, stocks? So I don't think the notion that the generally higher risk is true. So specifically, when we're talking about governmental bonds, um, if you buy a bond from a, a nation state government where the nation has a really good GDP, let's say the US as an example, or maybe Germany, um, those bonds are considered very, very safe investments because there's virtually no way that these nation states will suddenly just fail and not pay you back your bond principal. When we're talking about companies, the risk is definitely higher. If you're talking about US Treasury bonds or, or German bonds, that it's it's a very safe bet. But you, you will see that in the generally lower return of investment, especially for these low-risk bonds, the interest that they pay is generally very low. Okay, so outside of your standard accounts and investing in the stock market, there are a lot of people that invest in things like real estate, which I think is done in a couple ways. One being buying property and then renting it out, essentially making an income off of that property. And then to these people that flip houses, right? So they buy a house at a lower low value, fix it up, and then sell it at a higher value to make um, a profit in a short period of time. Yeah, I think there's one other important way that people invest into the real estate market. It's related to the first one, but it's kind of combining home ownership with, with renting out property. It's generally called house hacking. And the idea is that you buy a multi-unit property, so like with two or three apartments, a house with two or three apartments, or a duplex or something like that. And you move into one of the units yourself and you rent out the other units. What this allows you to do is, for one, a certain percentage of your home is rented out and is generating cash for you. But because you are also living in that building, you get all the tax and credit benefits that come with primary home ownership. Versus having a income home. Yeah, so if you just buy a property that you do not live in and rent it out, you generally get worse interest rates from banks. You 
do not get any um, tax credit on your interest that you pay. If you live in one of the units of a multi-unit property, I think there's a limit of four units, but then you get all of these benefits while also having basically your tenants pay, pay your mortgage. Right. The goal of any property investment, and this is important, is to be cash flow positive. So you really only want to make an investment into property if the monthly rental income that you can generate exceeds what you have to pay in terms of mortgage interest, mortgage interest. Mortgage principal is like saving, so it's not a cost. Um, and then another way to invest money, and we're just going to quickly mention it for completeness sake, are commodities. So you could buy gold or crude oil or certificates for those things so you don't have to actually you, you mean i don't have to have an a oil place tanker in your backyard. <laughs> or, or like gold bricks in the basement <laughs> although there are still people that actually buy physical gold because they like uh, the idea it has a reputation of being very resilient in times of crisis and whatnot visit happilyunmarried.media slash support to learn how you can support our podcast when we're talking about investing, we do have to briefly talk about taxes. You'll like this, though, because... Oh, so, I don't think I'll like anything that has to do with taxes. <laughs> the tax that most people know is income tax. That is the amount of tax that you pay to the federal government um, and potentially also to uh, your state government based, based on the amount of money that you make on your paychecks. And this is a progressive tax system, so meaning if you make more money, you have to pay more in taxes. Well, you should. Right. If you look at the different tax brackets, um, you will see that the tax brackets generally, they, they grow pretty quickly. Your marginal tax bracket, which is the tax bracket at the highest rate that you reach, can easily be 20-30% depending on the income that you make. Now, if we're talking about investments, when you sell investments, you also have to pay taxes. But only the gains of those sales are taxed. And then they're also not taxed as income, they're taxed as capital gains. And there's a different tax progression, there are different tax brackets, and basically the amount of taxes that you have to pay for those capital gains is different, and it's generally lower. Let's say we take, we invest $1,000, and after a year, we sell whatever we invested in stock, for example, and we make $1,100 in return. So now we paid $1,000, and when we sell, we get $1,100. Our capital gains are... $100. $100, correct. So when we sell the stock, we pay capital gains taxes on $100 of capital gains. And depending on your tax bracket, capital gains taxes are either 10%, 15%, or 20%, at least as of now when we record this in 2019. And so most people will probably only have to pay 10% in capital gains taxes. So while your income is taxed at maybe like 20%, you, your capital gains are only taxed at 10%. So you actually have to pay significantly less. So that's why capital gains taxes are not as bad as income taxes generally. But another interesting thing is, which makes it attractive to invest into higher risk assets, like the stock market, when you sell assets that you made a loss on, you can actually deduct those losses up to a limit of $3,000 per year from your taxes. Let's say I buy stock for $10,000 and whatever company it is doesn't perform very well and the stock goes down in value and when i sell it a couple of years later it's only worth seven thousand dollars so now i've realized three thousand dollars in losses these three thousand dollars i can completely deduct from my taxes basically meaning if i'm paying 30 percent in income tax i can deduct three thousand dollars from that meaning the federal government actually gives me back a thousand dollars of my three thousand dollars in losses so i actually only lost two thousand dollars which makes it more attractive to invest into higher risk assets and one strategy that i personally use is 
and again, this is not financial advice, please go to a professional. But what you can do is if you have a broad portfolio of different assets and every year you look at which assets went up in value, which assets went down in value, and you identify exactly $3,000 in losses that you can realize, it's called uh, loss harvesting, where you basically can deduct those losses from your income taxes. So you sell the $3,000 in lost stock. Yes. And then deduct it from your taxes. Yes. Um, so I realized those losses to be able to deduct them from my taxes. Talking about higher risk assets, we want to call out one important difference, especially because if you are not aware of this, you may make a mistake that could cost you all of your money. That is differentiating between an investment and a speculation or a speculative investment. So I think the first example of speculation uh, is kind of a buzzword um, that we all hear about. And that's, oh, man, you should be invested in Bitcoin. Oh, cryptocurrency. That's the next big thing. And all these people who were invested who like when Bitcoin went through the roof, made a ton of money overnight, um, you know, for for people who may not truly understand how cryptocurrency works. I mean, that's a volatile area to invest money in. You shouldn't look at it as an investment. Another example would be timing the market. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the idea behind timing the market is if if you're super smart and you, or you know something that nobody else knows. Don't there's, there's a line. There's a very fine line line. and it's called insider trading. And that is, uh, against the law. Yes. It's a federal crime. So there is a fine line, but let's say not, you know, something, but you see something in the market and how companies behave, how stock behave. And there's traders trying to analyze uh, with um, technical indicators, trying to identify companies that they expect will go up or expect will go down. And so the idea is if you're really good at this and have the ability to do so, or have a computer program that is really good at this and has the ability to do so, you can predict when certain critical events in the market happen. And with that, you can either buy or sell specific assets such that you can make a profit off of that. Reality here is that even the best traders in the world with timing the market generally do not outperform whole market indexes. If you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you will probably make more profits than any of your friends trying to time the market. Over a longer period. Yes, over a longer period of time. Exactly. Okay. And then the last example here is angel investing. And I think many people are familiar with this. Uh, when you think about tech startups, a lot of tech startups get angel investors who are people who are just donating their mon- money because they believe either in the person or the the business and what it is that they're trying to do. Right. And we're talking here about like millions of dollars, right? right? But when we say angel investing in this context, we don't actually mean that you are going to throw a million dollars at a tech startup. No, but maybe your brother or your best friend wants to open a restaurant and you say, here, I'm going to invest $10,000 into your restaurant. There's no guaranteed ROI on something like that. You have to give in good faith. Right. So this is not really an investment. This is a speculation. You speculate that the business will be successful and will provide a monetary benefit to you, but you don't know. There's very high risk with this. That's why it's a speculative investment. I think our main point here is that, I mean, if, if you want to invest in a speculation, that's totally fine. Um, we're not saying that you shouldn't, but what we're saying is that you should be conservative um, at most, no more than 5% of your net worth, because you need to, you need to feel comfortable with losing all this money. You stand in the perfect set of circumstances to potentially make a lot of money, but you also have to be prepared that whatever money you put into a speculation, you're going to lose it. Right. Yeah. So if you're not 
ready or willing to take to just take the same amount of money and Throw light it, it on fire in your backyard, which is, by the way, also a criminal offense, we should really stop making <laughs> these suggestions. <laughs> I think of this as gambling. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. Yes. So red or black. But expect to lose everything you bet. Yes. All right. So we just covered a lot of information. So if you're still with, with us. <laughs> if you even started watching this video. <laughs> um, we're going to boil it down to kind of the main points here. What we want you to take away from, from today's episode. Starting with number one, if we, we're not clear in making this point. You need to save money. Right. I think it's in your best interest to do so and good things will come from it. Even if you, I think this is important, even if you feel like you don't have any money left to save anything or it's just a little, $50, $100, like that might be a lot for some people. But if you can put that money aside and start saving and not spend it for whatever you would have spent it instead, then it will start adding up and it will help you going forward in your life. In fact, that is kind of was how I started myself. So that's a perfect example. I was in a position where I did not feel like I had any extra money left to start saving. And the first step that I took, although it felt like a baby step, it added up was I set up a direct deposit so that every paycheck, $50 went into a savings account. And that slowly started to snowball to a point where I could then take a significant chunk of money and start investing. Right. And there's some banks offer tools and things to help you do that. So for example, I think you have a debit card that always rounds up to the full dollar and yes. puts that in your savings account or something like that, right? Yeah, so I have Wells Fargo and every time I use my debit card, it doesn't round up because the bigger the purchase, so sometimes I'll... So it's a percentage. Yeah, so sometimes it's a dollar, sometimes it's six dollars, um, but that really adds up as well. Right, so so if you don't feel comfortable setting up a direct deposit for 50 or hundred dollars every month, this could be another way how you can get some money into your savings account. Uh, then the next point is the earlier you invest, the better. If you can take your very first paycheck that you ever earn and put that entirely into an investment account, then you should absolutely do that because this will pay off. And if you're not that person, don't be discouraged and don't think that it's too late for you to start. It's never too late to start. Um, especially if you if you feel like you have debt and the debt is eating you up and you can't... like even think about saving anytime soon if you can start paying off your debt only very even if it's only a very small amount as soon as you have paid up that first credit card all that money that you've been paying an interest for that credit card and principal payments and whatnot now frees up and suddenly you have significantly more money you can throw that at the next debt source and at the next debt source and then eventually and eventually you have a a decent amount of money available every month that you can then save and invest so don't get discouraged so speaking of high interest debt, the order of operation here is important. The first thing that you want to do is pay off your high interest debt. Once you've done that, you can take the next step, which is going to be start an emergency savings account. Once you've established your emergency savings account or in conjunction with the emergency savings account, take advantage of any employer offered retirement savings account. So speaking of high interest debt, there is is an order of operations that you want to take when saving money. And the first is going to be paying off your high interest debt. Once you've done that, you want to move towards an emergency savings account. The next thing you're going to want to do is max out the tax advantage of your retirement accounts. 
Once you've done that, you can diversify your investments. And with that, thanks for listening. If you want to invest in us, please go to happilyunmarried.media slash support and find out how to do so. And also, don't forget to like and subscribe. I'm Daniel. And I'm Danielle. And And we're we're Happily happily Unmarried. Unmarried. You better stop listening right now.